Laughing Jack, written by Snuffbomb. It was a nice summer day. My five-year-old son James was playing outside in the backyard of our suburban home. James has always been a quiet boy. He plays by himself, mostly. He never had many friends, but he has always had a wild imagination. I was in the kitchen feeding our dog Fido when I heard what sounded like James talking to someone in the backyard. I'm not sure who it was he could be talking to. Could it have been finally that he made a new friend? Being a single mom, it's hard for me to always keep an eye on my son, so I decided to go outside and check on him. When I went into the backyard, I was a bit confused because James was the only person back there. He was talking to himself? I could have sworn I heard another voice. James, it's time to come inside. I called out to him. He came inside and sat down at the kitchen table. It was about lunchtime, so I decided to make him a turkey sandwich. James, who were you talking to out there? I asked. James looked up for a moment. I was playing with my new friend, he said smiling. I poured him some milk and continued to pry, as any good mother would. Does your friend have a name? Why didn't you ask him to have lunch with us? I asked. James stared at me for a moment, before replying. His name is Laughing Jack. I was a bit taken back by what he said. Oh, that's a strange name. What does your friend look like? I asked a bit confused. He's a clown. He has long hair and a big swirly cone nose. He's got long arms and baggy pants with stripy socks. And he always smiles. I realized my son was talking about an imaginary friend. I suppose it is normal for kids his age to have imaginary friends, especially when he has no real friends to play with. It's probably just a face. The rest of the day went by as per usual, and it was starting to get late, so I put James to bed. I tucked him in, gave him a kiss, and made sure to turn on his nightlight before I closed the door. I was pretty tired myself, so I decided to go to bed not long after. I had an awful nightmare. It was dark. It was in some sort of run-down amusement park. I was scared, running through an endless field of empty tents, broken-down rides, and abandoned game huts. The whole place had a horrible look to it. Everything was black and white. The prize stuffed animals all hung from nooses in the game hunts, all with sick grins stitched on their faces. It felt like the whole park was looking at me, even though there wasn't another living thing in sight. Then suddenly, I began to hear music play. The sounds of Pop Goes the Weasel began playing when a squeeze box echoed through the park. It was hypnotizing. I followed its tune to the circus tent, almost in a trance-like state, unable to stop my legs from moving forward. It was pitch black. The only light came from a single spotlight shining on the center of the big top. As I walked toward the light, the music slowed down. I found myself singing along, unable to stop. 
All around the mulberry bush The monkey chased the weasel The monkey though, twas all in fun The music stopped right before its climax And suddenly the lights shot on The intensity of the lights was particularly blinding All I could see was a small dark silhouette shuffled towards me Then another appeared And another And another There were dozens of them All coming towards me I couldn't move My legs were frozen All I could do was watch As the haunting figures drew near As they got closer I could see they were all children As I looked at each one of them I noticed that they were horribly disfigured And mutilated Some had cuts all over their bodies Others were severely burnt And others were missing limbs Even eyes The children enveloped me Clawing at my flesh Dragging me to the ground And tearing me inside and out As the children tore me apart And I faded away All I could hear was laughter Horrible, awful, (laughs) evil laughter I woke up the next morning in a cold sweat After taking a few deep breaths I looked over and saw that A few of James' action figures Were positioned facing me on top of my nightstand I sighed James had probably woken up early And put these here I gathered up the toys And made my way to James' room However, when I opened the door James was sound asleep I just shrugged and placed the toys back in his toy box And headed out to the living room A little while later, James woke up and I made him some breakfast. He was quiet and seemed a bit groggy. Perhaps he didn't sleep well either. I decided to ask him about the toys. James, honey, did you put the toys in mommy's room this morning? His eyes shot up at me for a moment, then quickly glanced down at his cereal. Laughing Jack did it. I rolled my eyes and responded. Well, you tell Laughing Jack to keep the toys in your room. Okay? James nodded and finished up his breakfast, then decided to go play out in the backyard. I went to relax in the living room, and I must have dozed off because I woke up a couple hours later. Crap! I need to check on James! I was a bit worried. It had been over two hours, and I haven't checked up on him. I went, stepped out into the backyard, but James wasn't there anymore. I was getting so nervous, I called out to him. James! James, where are you? Just then I heard a giggle come from the front yard. I rushed through the gate around to the front of the house. James was sitting on the sidewalk. I breathed a sigh of relief and walked over to him. James, how many times have I told you to stay in the backyard? James, what are you eating? James looked up at me then reached into his pocket and pulled out a handful of hard candies in all colors. This made me very nervous. James, who gave you that candy? James just stared at me, not speaking. James, please tell mommy where you got that candy. James hung his head down and said, Laughing Jack gave it to me. My heart sunk. I kneeled down to look him in the eye. James, I've had enough of this damn Laughing Jack thing. He's not real. 
Now this is a very serious situation and I need to know who gave you the candy. I could see my son's eyes tear up. But Mama, Laughing Jack did give me the candy. I closed my eyes and took a deep breath. James has never lied to me, but what he's telling me is impossible. I make him spit out the candy and I throw the rest away. James appears to be fine. Maybe I'm just overreacting. After all, he could have gotten it from Tim and Linda from next door, or Mr. Walker down the street. Either way, I'm going to have to keep a closer eye on James. That night, I put James to bed as usual and decided to go to bed early myself. Suddenly, I was woken up by a loud bang coming from the kitchen. I sprung out of the bed and hurried down the stairs. When I got to the kitchen, I was horrified. Everything on the counters had been thrown to the floor, and our dog, Fido, hung dead from a light fixture. His stomach was cut open and stuffed with candy, the same type that James was eating earlier that day. My shock was quickly broken by a sharp scream that came from James's room, followed up by a loud crash. I quickly grabbed the knife from the drawer and moved up the stairs, with the speed that only a mother would have when their child is in danger. I burst through the door and flicked on the lights. Everything in the room was knocked over and tossed to the floor. My poor son in his bed, crying and shaking with fear. A pool of urine staining the sheets. I scooped my child up and ran out of the house and went next door to Tom and Linda's house. Luckily, they were still awake. They let me use their phone and I called the police. It didn't take them long to arrive and I explained what happened. They looked at me as if I were crazy. They searched the house but all they found was a dead dog and two trashed rooms. The officer told me that someone had probably gotten into the house and done this right before making a quick escape. When they heard me coming up the stairs, I knew it wasn't true. All the doors were locked, and none of the windows were open. Whatever was in my house didn't come from outside. The next day, James stayed inside. I didn't want him to leave my sight. I went into the garage and found his old baby monitor and set it up in his room. If anything comes into it tonight, I was going to be able to hear it. I went to the kitchen and grabbed the largest knife from the drawer and put it on my nightstand. Imaginary friend or not, I'm not letting anything hurt my little boy. Soon enough, night came. I put James to bed. He was afraid, but I promised him that nothing was going to happen. I tucked him in, gave him a kiss, and turned on his nightlight. Before closing the door, I whispered to him, Good night, James. I love you. I tried to stay up as long as I could. After a few hours, I felt myself drifting off. My baby would be safe for the night, and I needed to sleep. Just as I lay my head on my pillow, I heard a soft noise come from the baby monitor. At first, it sounded like interference, like the kind of a radio would make. Then it turned into a soft moan. Was James asleep? Then I heard it. The laugh from my nightmare. That horrible laugh. I sprung up from my bed and grabbed the knife under my pillow. I rushed over to James's room and creaked the door open. I tried the light switch, 
but it wouldn't work. I took a step in, and I could feel the warm, thick liquid on my feet. Suddenly James' nightlight came on, and I could see the absolute horror that laid out in front of me. James's body was nailed up on the wall, the nails piercing through his hands and feet. His chest was cut wide open, and his organs hung down to the floor. His eyes and tongues were removed, along with most of his teeth. I was disgusted. I could hardly believe that this was my baby boy. Then I heard it again, the soft, desperate moan. James was still alive. My baby. My poor baby in so much pain, barely clinging to life. I ran across the room and vomited on the floor, but my sickness was interrupted by a horrible cackle coming from behind me. I spun around while still wiping vomit from my mouth. Then out of the shadows emerged the fiend responsible for all of this horror. Laughing Jack. His ghost white skin and matted black hair hung down to his shoulders. He had piercing white eyes surrounded by dark black rings. His twisted smile revealed a row of sharp, jagged teeth, and his skin didn't look like skin at all. It almost looked like rubber or plastic. He wore a patchy black and white clown outfit with striped sleeves and socks. His body itself was grotesque, his long arms hanging down past his waist, and the way he was poised made him look almost boneless, like a rag doll. He let out a sickening laugh, as if to let me know that he was pleased with my reaction to his work. He then turned around slowly in front of James, and began to laugh even more at the horrific sight he has laid out in front of me. That was enough to shake me from my terror. I snapped. Get away from him, you bastard! I rushed at the monster raising the knife above my head and stabbed down at him. But as soon as the knife touched him, he disappeared in a cloud of black smoke. The knife passed right through and pierced James, still beating heart, splashing the warm blood on my face. No. What have I done? My baby. I killed my baby. I immediately fell to my knees, and I could hear sirens in the distance growing louder. My boy. My sweet baby boy. I promised mommy would protect you, but I failed. I'm sorry, James. I'm so sorry. Police soon arrived to find me in front of my son, still wielding the knife covered in my baby's blood. The trial was short. Insanity. I was placed in the Firepolis house for the criminally insane, where I have been for the past two months. It's not so bad here. The only reason I'm awake now is because someone is playing Pop Goes the Weasel outside my window. In Between, written by Clarissa. I'm in between. One of them bit me. The bastard took a chunk out of my upper arm. 
The fool probably didn't even know it was an arm. He probably saw me as a walking turkey leg or something. Oh, but he got his dues. I whacked his useless head off with a crowbar I stole when stuff got really serious. It got serious about a month ago. And let me tell you, it happened just the way everyone thought it would happen. Some contained little outbreak. Then boom, everyone I know is staggering around like kangaroos tripping on Dextro. Not me though, I knew I was going to fight it. I did well until about a week ago when Mr. Slobbermouth munched on my bicep. It amazes me even when I'm so coherent. God, I wish I wasn't. I'm not like them, but I'm just like them. I have the hunger they have, but I... I have all the guilt and love of humanity that is going to keep me from surviving. I'm not even sure what I want to survive for anymore. I see them do horrible things. Things that are starting to drive me mad. And I either got sick to my stomach or found my mouth watering. I don't want to live if living means I have to watch the destruction of my kind every day. But then, this means no more hiding. It's as if they can sense something in me. Like they scan for a zombie membership card and find it on me. They leave me alone. I can walk freely among them. You know how I said I'm just like them? Well, I'm better than them. I'm smarter. And have the ability to gain the trust of humans. I found one yesterday. I know where all the good hiding spots are, you see. And Lord, was it happy to see me. It grasped my arm and looked right into my eyes, saying it was happy to have found someone to fight with, making sure none of the no-brains were around. I took it with me and hid with it in a storm cellar. I let it fall asleep. Then I broke its neck, busted open its head like a coconut, and tore into its meaty brain. The blood complemented it nicely. For a few moments, I felt bad for what I had done. I saw his body in that stagnant pool of blood, looking as if it was still sleeping, and felt some remorse for the poor, trusting boy. I wondered about his life before the disaster. Was he happy? Did his family love him? Would he have survived anyways? That acidic guilt rose in me, a constant reminder of my humanity. But there's at least one thing zombies and humans have in common. The will to survive. And I'm about to do a much better job than either one of them will. Freak Next Door Written by Adrian Johnson I lived next to this one kid who always had bandages wrapped around their whole head, even covering their face. I remembered his name was Wilbur, a 12-year-old boy who never left his house. He sometimes looked out into his bedroom window on the top floor at all of the kids who were playing outside, while Wilbur sat and watched. I remembered his windows had metal bars on them, so there was no way he could climb out of his bedroom window. We sometimes communicated with each other by writing to each other on a piece of paper 
since Wilbur can't hear me because the window was locked. Wilbur only does it when his parents aren't around, since they're weird. His mother and father were one of those parents who were insanely crazy about science and chemistry, according to Wilbur. They would stay in their basement all workday and night, except at the times where they were supposed to give Wilbur some food daily. Now, they're not treating him like an animal. His parents were just very busy. They told Wilbur that he shouldn't go outside to make contact with anyone until his face got better. He told me he accidentally slipped on one of his parents' chemicals and fell face first, ruining his appearance, and his parents feared that he would be made fun of by the other children in the neighborhood. I remember one time, a couple of older kids were throwing rocks and pebbles at his window, laughing and pointing at Wilbur as he looked down at them. He told me that they did it a few times, but he's used to it now. But to me, he's a great guy, and still is today. I had never been inside his house, but he showed me some cool stuff he collected, like comic books. He had loads of them, from Marvel to DC, to other non-superhero comics. He was a huge superhero fan. He even said that he felt like a superhero. A normal human being who became affected by dangerous chemicals and then became a powerful superhero. He once wrote on a piece of paper, and he had it put on his window as he pretended to be a superhero. I had a collection of action figures and video games that amazed Wilbur. He told me that he never played a single video game in his life, which was quite sad. He also told me that his babysitter took them away from him before he could play them, and burnt them right in front of him. Wilbur had a mean babysitter named Miss Fitzgerald, a tall, mean lady who never liked kids at all. This started before his face became messed up. That's what he told me. She was basically every kid's nightmare of all the things I have heard she has done. Miss Fitzgerald had babysat many kids before, and trust me, it was not pretty. Wilbur told me that the last kid she babysat, a four-year-old girl, she made her live through seven hours of hell. Wilbur said that Miss Fitzgerald starved her and surrounded her bed with a few bear traps. And the worst thing that happened, the parents didn't know about her deed. She would lie to them just to get paid. All those things I've heard, she is a foul, cruel woman with no soul at all. And now she had to babysat this poor guy. Wilbur was old enough to make his own decisions, except for some. But his parents apparently hired an evil witch. The parents had to go to Texas to a scientist's convention, so Wilbur was left alone with her. One time I was writing about her to show to him, but then I saw Miss Fitzgerald forcefully pulling him away from the window, and that was the rest of my day without talking to him. The next day, when I looked through my window to see Wilbur, I saw someone lying down on his bed. Looking at the person's wrapped head, I banged my fist on the window, trying to get Wilbur's attention. He slowly sat up on his bed, wiping away tears from his eyes. He seemed to be crying, which gave me a thought. I had a worried look on my face as I saw bruises all over his arms and legs, a faded dark tone of purple. He went to write something down on a piece of paper. Then as Wilbur finished writing, he went up to the window and pressed the note on the glass. What he wrote had terrified me. The whole situation still burnt into the back of my mind. 
something I knew I would never forget. He wrote, Help me. What made it worse was that this handwriting was scribbled onto the paper and was almost illegible. Bulber kept banging on the window with his other hand. Then suddenly, I saw someone else run into his bedroom next to him. It was her. You know who. She had something in both of her big, chubby hands. In one hand was a lemon, and on the other was a pair of scissors. What Miss Fitzgerald did terrified me even more. Miss Fitzgerald ran up to Wilbur, grabbing his head, holding it still. I saw him screaming in pain and fear, so I knew I had something to do. At the time, I couldn't stop watching. She used her scissors to cut open the bandages and unwrap them off his head, and threw them to the side. What I saw almost made me vomit, something that sickened me. I was utterly shocked at looking at Wilbur's real, deformed face. His whole head was completely covered by bandages, and what was underneath, I knew the purpose too. I saw his face almost melted off, showing a dark red layer underneath. I could only imagine his face looking like melted cheese on a cheeseburger. Wilbur's whole face, even one of his eyeballs, were burnt. The chemicals had messed him up badly. Miss Fitzgerald sliced the lemon in half with the scissors, pinning Wilbur down on his bed. Then she threw the scissors to the side next to the bandages and held his head still with one hand. With the other hand, she squeezed a lemon slice into Wilbur's head, into his eyes, into the red layer of his face, the painful expression on his face, his loud, muffled screams, his face stinging from the acid of the lemon juice. She used the other lemon to squeeze into his face again, torturing Wilbur with extreme pain. I decided to bang my fist on my window, which was a bad idea. Miss Fitzgerald looked over to the bedroom window right at me. I jumped back as she noticed me. She ran out of the bedroom, shoving Wilbur down as he screamed in pain and agony. I knew what she was going to do, so I ran out of my bedroom and ran downstairs. The good thing about this situation was that my parents don't know about Wilbur and the fact that they were at work for a little while. I locked the front door, hoping Miss Fitzgerald wouldn't burst into my house. I looked around for the house phone, but as I was, a loud bang rang in my ears. I looked behind myself at the door, noticing her red, sweaty face and her curly blonde hair. By the looks in her eyes, I knew there was going to be some trouble. She kept banging at the door, nearly screaming her head off. As I looked around for the phone, I finally spotted it. Next to the couch on the coffee table, I ran towards it, dialing 911 as the sounds of Miss Fitzgerald threatening screams were heard from the outside. Waiting for a few rings, I finally heard the operator's voice, the usual greeting from a 911 operator. I started explaining the whole situation from the beginning to end as quickly and clear as possible. They told me to wait patiently as the police will arrive at my house soon. It took a few minutes for the police to arrive at my house. Not only did they arrive, but my parents arrived early from work as well. Apparently they got a call from the police explaining my situation and decided to come home. My parents were extremely worried and frightened. They asked me more questions about it than the police did. I had to explain everything, from being friends with Wilbur to how his parents left him with an abusive babysitter to what she tried to do. 
About an hour later, a police officer came to me. He had something he wanted to tell me about the horrible incident that took place next door. The truth about the babysitter, the parents, and Wilbur was truly shocking. Based on the evidence they found, Wilbur's parents weren't his actual parents at all. They adopted Wilbur from an orphanage that's out of the town, only to perform an experiment on him. It was the reason why they moved to Texas to hide. The babysitter, Miss Fitzgerald, she was part of the experiment too. In fact, Wilbur wasn't the first kid to get adopted by the scientists. They had done illegal experiments on those orphans, and it was to find out how much pain a child can take before death. Based on the cause of death and the age of the child, 38 children between the ages of 2 and 13 were reported missing, and Wilbur was one of them. There were security cameras on the outside and the inside of the house. Right now, they arrested Miss Fitzgerald for child cruelty and the deaths of many children and are on the case to find the two scientists. All of that, and I was friends with someone who wouldn't have been killed if I didn't call the police. Apparently, Wilbur also tried to lie about almost everything he told me. He was trying to protect himself. He was sent to a new trusted family, a married couple who lived out of town. Since then, I never saw him again. Until now. Twenty years later, I went to a bar to get myself a few drinks by myself when a man approached me. Remember me? He said. The familiar man smiling at me. I smiled back, realizing how long it had been since I had last seen Wilbur. In fact, he looks like a nice, healthy man now. Without his bandages, he was a brown-haired man with sky-blue eyes. He almost looked like a complete stranger. And after that, we talked and drank a few glasses, finally speaking to each other in person. Wilbur and I knew that nobody would try to keep us apart. The scientist and the babysitter are probably locked away right now. After all, I still couldn't stop thinking of the fact that this man would have been killed if I didn't help save his life. I Told You to Smile, written by Robert Cherry. It was the 2nd of January, 2.04 a.m. I woke up to a knocking on the door, one knock every three seconds. I slipped on my slippers and walked down the stairs. As I walked down, the knocking on the door got faster, almost like a heartbeat. When I got to the door, the knocking stopped. I looked outside and nobody was there. I went back up to my room and went back to bed, thinking that it was just some kids playing a prank. At 4.21am, I woke up to the front door slamming shut. I jumped, terrified. I looked over at the frosted window to find SMILE written all over the frost. I grabbed my phone next to me, ready to call 911, only to find a message written on it saying, I told you to smile. I cried and ran for my life running outside. As soon as I got outside, I knocked on my neighbor's house across the road. They answered and held me while I sobbed. They phoned the police at exactly 5.42 a.m. The police came to my neighbor's house after an extensive search of my house. They told me there had been no evidence at all of anyone in my house other than me. The messages on the window were gone. Same with the phone. They told me to get some sleep and advised me to see the doctor about stress and anxiety problems. Screw that. I knew what happened to me was real. The following evening, 
After spending the day at my neighbor's, I went home. I went up to my bedroom and set up a camera. It was aimed at my bedroom door and my bed. I set it to record and went to sleep. Thankfully, I slept through the night. However, I watched the footage. I couldn't believe what I saw. At three in the morning, something crawled out from under my bed. It was a completely naked, anorexic man. He stood up and looked at me on the bed. He did so for an hour, not moving at all. Then he moved. He walked over to the camera until his face took up the whole shot. He was extremely pale and had bulging veins all over his head. His eyes were completely black with a huge smile on his face. He stared at the camera for about two more hours, never blinking, just slightly twisting his head every now and again. After two hours of him staring went past, he walked back over to my bed and crawled back under. I skipped the video forward until it showed me getting up and walking around, grabbing the camera. The video finished. I was frozen with fear. The video showed him going back under, but not leaving. Whatever it was, it was still there. The Theater, written by Anonymous Have you ever heard of an old PC game called The Theater? Yeah, I didn't think so. Probably because many people say it doesn't even exist. You see, The Theater is an old computer game, released around the same time as Doom. Today, if you were to find it, it's only available on crappy bootleg CD-ROMs, which, more often than not, don't even actually contain the game. The actual legitimate copies that were released back in the day feature a blank cover with nothing but the sprite of what has since been named the Ticket Taker. He is simply a poorly drawn, pixelated, Caucasian, bald man with large red lips wearing a red vest over a white shirt and black pants. He is completely emotionless, Though some say that if you smash the disc, his face is shown as angry the next time you look at the cover. But this is just dismissed as an urban myth. What is peculiar about the theater, though, is that there is no developer named on the jewel case, nor a game description on the back. It is simply the ticket taker on a white backdrop on both sides. The game was initially known for its inability to install correctly. The installation process immediately locks up the computer when the user reaches the licensing agreement. Also strange about the licensing agreement for the theater is that whenever the development studio is supposed to be named, the text is simply blank. Anyways, most people who have claimed to own one of the original CDs say that they figured out how to install the game by simply rebooting their computer on the licensing agreement with the disc still inside. Then they are prompted to press, I agree, on the startup. Then they continue with the installation. The game then starts up without any introduction besides the main menu that is simply the sprite of a movie theater's exterior on an empty city street. The title fades in and then the three menu buttons. New game. Load. Options. Selecting options immediately crashes the game to the desktop. 
Load is said not to function at all. Even if you don't have a safe game, nothing happens when you press it. Thus, new game is the only working menu option. Once it is selected, you are in the first person view. You are standing in an empty movie theater lobby, with the exception of the ticket taker standing in front of a dark hallway, which you can only assume leads to the theaters themselves. There's nothing to do but look at the poorly drawn, mostly illegible movie posters, or approach the ticket taker. Once the player moves towards the ticket taker, a very low quality sound clip plays saying, Thank you, please enjoy the movie. Along with a speech box saying the same thing. You then walk into the hallway, and the screen fades to black, and you're back in the empty lobby, and you do the exact thing again, and again, and again. While this may sound like a really horrible game, a number of peculiar things occur as you continue to play it. The number of times that you have to continue into the hall after giving your ticket to the ticket taker before the strange events happen is unknown. Most state that it's completely random and could take anywhere from the first playthrough to the 400th playthrough. What happens, though, has deeply disturbed some players. The first occurrence is when the player fades back in after walking into the hallway. This time, they will notice the ticket taker is completely absent. The player then, without any other options, decides to walk into the dark hallway. The sound clip and text box mentioned previously still play in the absence of the ticket taker, but when the player walks into the hallways, the screen does not fade out. It goes pitch black as they walk deeper into the hall. But the player's footsteps, sound clip is still playing as they continue to push the up button on their keyboard. Those claiming to have played the original game report to have felt extremely uncomfortable walking down the hallway, anticipating the whole way something horrible happening. Well, eventually the player is unable to move forward. There is nothing for a few moments before a strange sprite that is described as the ticket taker, but with a swirl for a face, appears and stands before the player. The original player of the game says their bodies immediately froze up, and their stomachs churn. They saw this sprite, which has been appropriately named the Swirlhead Man. Nothing happens as the Swirly Head Man stands before them. Then suddenly, a piercing screech plays as the game glitches out. This lasts for a few minutes, with the screeching being continuous. Then the player is abruptly returned to the lobby, with all the sounds and graphics being as they should be. The game continues normally for the next couple of cycles of entering the hallway, with a couple of the original players claiming the swirly head man would briefly appear and disappear in the corner of the screen as a brisk yelp sound effect plays. Then at some point, after meeting the swirly head man, the player sees the ticket taker pacing back and forth. Though there is no walking animation, the sprite's limbs are completely static, so he just hops up and down slightly as a substitute, with his eyes being wide and his mouth open to simulate a worried facial expression. Some players notice that the movie posters have been replaced with images of the swirly headman, which caused them to immediately turn their character's head away from the posters and approach the ticket taker. Then another different, low-quality sound clip plays, 
but the speech box contains nothing but corrupted characters that cause whatever text that would have been in the box to be completely illegible. Due to the extremely low quality of the sound, it is debated by the players that what exactly the ticket taker says at this point, though it is widely agreed that he says, never reach the other levels. Then the screen fades out once again and returns the player back to their starting point in the lobby. But the ticket taker is gone, and the hallway is blocked by a large brick wall sprite. Touching the brick wall will immediately crash the game, and that's all there is to it. No one knows what the other levels are, or how to gain access to them. Nor it is known why the swirly head man causes a acute fear in those who have seen him in the game. All the original copies of the theater have never been lost or destroyed, but the creepiest part is that all the original players of the game claim to occasionally see a brief glimpse of the swirly-head man out of the corner of their eyes. The Tapping Written by Anonymous It's about 9.35 at night. The show on your TV is silent. The volume turned down. Maybe you're one of those people that has to have a static noise and a picture, even when listening to or watching something else. The living room light is on. Two of the five bulbs have burnt out. The one in the back seems the next to go, but you don't think much about it as you stretch out in your chair. Something begins gnawing at the back of your mind. It's just a normal Monday night. The rain outside, a steady drizzle that freezes as it hits the road. Something that makes you want to look out the large panel window behind you, covered up by a Harley-Davidson blanket to keep the warmth in the house. You try to distract yourself, turning on your favorite band. Maybe it's Collective Soul or Ramstein or anything. Something to take your mind off of it. It's only 9.37 now, just a few minutes later, and you still have the urge to turn around and look out that window, shrouded by a black and orange blanket. You hear a slight tapping on the glass, like a fingertip trying to get your attention. You turn the music up a little bit louder, trying to drown it out. It becomes louder and more insistent now. Faster and faster, still trying to draw your attention. It's in my head. I'm just worked up. Too little sleep. Last night was crazy. You tell yourself. The rapping on the window ceases, and you begin to settle back. It's 9.41. You turn your attention back to the TV. Commercials flooding your brain. The tapping returns. A simple, sharp tap. Curiosity overrides fear, and you lift up the blanket with your left hand, expecting to see a stray limb from a tree smacking the window from the wind outside. Or maybe nothing at all. A long, pale, white tongue drags across the window, smacking back from another tap. Your heart stops as you look up. 
seeing two great white staring eyes bulging from an elongated face, lacerated with boiling cuts and hideous scars, coated with burns and its face nearly as long as the window itself. It's upside down, hanging from your ceiling. Its mouth is lined up with razor-sharp teeth. There may be thousands or millions of them. Several are rotten and pulsating, and it keeps staring at you. Its carnivorous mouth seems to be smiling, like it knows something you don't. The Seed Eater Through the Trees Written by Orphe666 I wish he would have stayed home, away from this cruel world that we live in. Dear reader, children should not roam this world alone, but we can't keep them in their nests forever. My son left his room one night to the enchanted chirping outside his window, and I knew what this was, but only from my years of studying this creature. You see, there is a monster that wanders around the globe preying on innocent children, watching, waiting. I remember her fondly. It was September 15, 1983. That was the year my wife and I escaped the busy world of New York to live our lives in the country, North Dakota. We lived happily there for several years, until I discovered my one true love, studying the Seed Eater. The Seed Eater is a disturbed bird-slash-human creature that roams the forest, stalking children, abducting them to be part of the legend. On June 19, 1987, I first saw it, sitting in my tree on my front lawn. I was in a daze when I saw it. My destiny beckoned to me. It said, follow it, love it, learn it. Around the same time, two weeks later, I awoke to a strange tapping noise on my front window. I knew it was him. I ran out of the house to see it sitting in the tree, just staring into my eyes. I was about to cry from the majesty of it. I remember it telling me that it wanted my help. I would do anything for it. On April 3rd, 1988, the seed eater arrived at my window again. I was overjoyed. It said it was time, and I remember. You see, the seed eater devours children to keep itself alive, indulging in their youth to live forever. I remember the little boy, oh, what was his name? Oh well, it doesn't matter. I remember going to his house and just simply knocking on the door at 5.29am, but nobody would answer. I saw the bay window, it was the boy's room. I went to tell the seed eater, let's just call him S.E. for now. He told me how to get his attention the next day. A couple of weeks went by, and the stench of the flesh was getting disgusting. Where was C.E.? The parents of the boy put up lost posters last week. I wonder why they didn't worry for the first two weeks. Oh well, I'm not concerned. On May 14, 1988, the boy was nothing but bloated, rotting flesh, and the S.C. was nowhere to be found. I guess my services weren't needed. May 15, 88. He came, he took the body, and requested another. 
May 16th, 88. Six kids killed, six kids devoured. Six more requested. May 18th, 88. H. How. E. Ever. L. Losing. P. People. M. Makes. E. Me. Wonder. The killer monster seed eater came tonight. He said kids weren't doing the trick anymore. He wanted something bigger. If you're reading this, you may be the only hope of finding out the truth of this thing. In my room, there is a journal on page 49. You'll discover how to take the life out of this monster. But he's had me under a tight death grip. I couldn't do it. But maybe you'll have more strength than me. Goodbye, everybody. I hope being eaten is what I brought on to myself. White with Red, written by Anonymous. A man went to a hotel and walked up to the front desk to check in. The woman at the desk gave him his key and told him that on the way to his room, there was a door with no number that was locked and no one was allowed in there. Especially, no one should look inside the room under any circumstances. So he followed the instructions of the woman at the front desk, going straight to his room and going to bed. The next night, his curiosity would not leave him alone about the room with no number on the door. He walked down the hall to the door and tried the handle. Sure enough, it was locked. He bent down and looked through the wide keyhole. Cold air passed through it, chilling his eye. What he saw was a hotel bedroom, like his, and in the corner was a woman whose skin was completely white. She was leaning her head against the wall, facing away from the door. He stared in confusion for a while. He almost knocked on the door out of curiosity, but decided not to. This disinclination saved his life. He crept away from the door and walked back to his room. The next day, he returned to the door and looked through the wide keyhole. This time, all he saw was redness. He couldn't make anything out besides a distinct red color, unmoving. Perhaps the inhabitants of the room knew that he was spying the night before and he had blocked the keyhole with something red. At this point, he decided to consult the woman at the front desk for more information. She sighed and said, Did you look through the keyhole? The man told her that he had, and she said, Well, I might as well tell you the story. A long time ago, a man murdered his wife in that room, and her ghost haunts it. But these people were not ordinary. They were white all over, except for their eyes which were red. The True Story of the Theater Written by Anonymous It's not something whispered about in certain circles. It's not something that comes in a plain-looking jewel case. It's not by a nameless, untraceable developer. And it's certainly not supernatural. The game in question is indeed called The Theater, R before E, and was developed by a company called Salida Software. I'm fairly certain it's an English company, despite the Spanish name. As far as I know, all they made was learning software, 
I have a math suite from them somewhere around here. So the theater was probably meant to be some sort of educational game. The game was obviously never finished, probably from lack of funding or the whole company going under. The description in the story is actually pretty accurate. It's in a first-person perspective with flat sprites in a 3D-ish environment and glitchy as hell. The ticket taker has an egg-shaped body and one of the hands is huge and misshapen. I think to look like he's reaching toward you for a ticket. The description of the swirly head man is also accurate, just a glitched version of the ticket taker. But I saw a few people saying that he looks like Gygas. That's not the case. The features of his face are just swirled, and are red because his lips are gigantic. I have absolutely no idea why this happens, because while there are a few character sprites in the game's resources, that isn't one of them. Oh, and just to clarify, the sprite is a bit creepy, that's all. It's not terrifying. It's never filled me with the sense of dread, it's just a bit creepy. The game plays pretty much exactly as stated in the story. So accurately, in fact, that I think the author just downloaded it somewhere and decided to make a scary story of his experience. I'll admit that some things in it can be unsettling, but not, oh my god, crap your pants off scary. Like I said, the game is unfinished and very, very glitchy. I think the idea is to select a movie from the poster on the wall, enter the theater, and play a minigame. The minigames are glitchy and missing resources, to the point of being almost unplayable, but there doesn't seem to be a time limit of any of them. So just have a plow through until you've done something right enough times to be dumped into the lobby. What's described in the story is what happens if you don't select the movie. You'll be allowed to enter the theater, but since the parameter of which game to load hasn't been set, you'll just be dumped back into the lobby. Here's where it gets a bit weird. If you continue to enter the theater without choosing a movie, odd, sometimes creepy things will happen. I'm not sure why, but if I were to make an educated guess, it would be the glitching past the minigames like this causes variables to reach values that weren't even meant to do, resulting in things appearing where they shouldn't. Or, you know, the game is just glitched to hell and back. It's been years, but here are some of the effects I can remember. The Swirly Head Man. Movie posters appearing out of their frames. Textures changing colors. Legitimately disturbing audio issues. Other characters. Other areas. The last two are obviously the most interesting ones. Sometimes you'll spawn in a small room with a black floor and green walls which will crash the game if touched. Sometimes you'll appear in a room similar to the lobby, with a concession stand. Kind of. There's a woman behind the counter with an incredibly poor-drawn popcorn machine and soda fountain, but it's all just an image on the wall. It's basically just a big yellow concession stand mural. I don't remember if you can interact with it or not. The only character that appears worth talking about is a guy in a brown jacket who appears on the sidewalk outside the lobby. Looking back, I don't think the story mentioned this, but to the left of where you start, out of the wall, is a row of glass doors looking out into the street outside the theater. 
If you glitch past the minigames enough, a man in a weird looking jacket, I think it's supposed to be the tweed? It's a mess. With a huge smile on his face will be just on the other side of the doors, staring at you. I mean a huge smile. Like Freaky Fred or Spark Bruchel. Google images if you want to. Actually, since he has the same body shape as the ticket taker, he looks a bit like the mayor of the Nightmare Before Christmas. His smile isn't creepy though, it's just broad. What is creepy are his eyes. While the ticket taker, Ashtray, and the other sprites will always face you, the smiling guy is anchored in a place like one of the walls. His eyes, however, are always staring right at you. Just thinking about that gives me chills. While there's nothing overtly scary or supernatural about the game itself, that's one thing that I will admit legitimately scares me, like a porcelain doll. Well, that's pretty much all there is to the theater. If you can find it somewhere, I'd recommend downloading it just to see what it's like. Oh, one thing I've forgotten. As stated in the story, getting the thing to run is, to say the least, difficult. I think someone got a hold of all the codes and resources and just compiled it, and added their own installer or something. Again, there's nothing paranormal about the installation. It just doesn't work well. The Boogeyman, written by Vincent Venacava. It started with my three-year-old son screaming in his room in the middle of the night. When I came to check on him, he was in hysterics. Tears ran down his little cheeks as he cried about how the boogeyman had frightened him. I let him sleep with my wife and I for the night, thinking it was a bad dream. The next evening, though, he didn't even want to be in the same room. But I convinced him that the boogeyman was just a figment of his imagination. I was awoken once more by his screams. I rushed to his room to find him in tears again. On the third night, I set up a camcorder in his room in order to show him that there was no monster. That evening, there was no screaming and no crying. I was refreshed when I woke up in the morning after having gotten my first good night's sleep in three days. However, my son did seem fatigued. He didn't even put his usual fuss in the morning when we got him ready for preschool. When my wife took him to daycare, I decided to review the camera's tape in order to find out how he had slept. I'll never forget what I saw. At around 2 a.m., while my son was asleep, his closet door slowly creaked open. Out of the shadows crept a pale, naked, veiny woman with long white hair and solid black eyes. Her body was bony and frail, like that of a Holocaust survivor. When she turned to the side, I could see her spine protruding from her hunched back like a dinosaur. She reached into my son's crib with her unnaturally large hands and covered his mouth. He was trying to scream, but he couldn't. The palm of one of her hands easily covered his head, muffling his cries 
she snatched him up with the ease that a person of her frame should not have, then walked back into the closet with him in her arms. An hour later, she returned with what looked like a wiggling maggot the size of a duffel bag and placed it in my son's bed before retreating once more into the closet. Over the next two hours, I watched it twist and turn while it grew and mutated into what looked like my baby boy. Once the transformation was complete, it got out of bed and slipped on a pair of his pajamas, then slid back between the covers and waited for us to come in. I don't know what that thing is that left with my wife this morning, but I know it's not my son. The Simplicity of It All Written by Andrew LaBelle You are taking a shower. It's not the type of shower you take before a job interview. Maybe aiming for your cleanliness to impress somebody or someone supposedly worthy of impressing. Nor is the type of shower you take after a long workout at the gym or after a jog or after whatever it is that applies to you. No. You're in your bathroom right now, standing under the soothing beam of hot water with wisp of steam spiraling off your back because you've got nothing better to do tonight and you like that squeaky clean feeling before hitting the hay. And although this isn't your first shower today, at least you can sleep easy knowing you're cleansed of the day's many stresses. Soap. Shampoo. It's all there, but you don't so much as touch it. For now, you're letting the water steam filter through your pores and enjoying the simplicity of it all. The lights go out. Startled, your feet squeal on the floor of the shower and you pause to make sure the sound was from your own. The sound of the water hitting the floor in the dark. You feel as if you're not alone in the room, which is impossible because you're the only one in the house. The sound of the switch had been unmistakable. You stay under it, under the water, your one and only landmark. Feeling around, your hands meet the slippery shower tiles, and you feel like a mime trapped in a blank box as you fumble for the adjacent wall. Then grab the curtain, finally something real, something you can touch that's now in front of you and will stay static as you reclaim your bearings. Outside of the shower, something starts choking. You abruptly stop breathing, strain to hear. It's a gut-wrenching cough that wheezes in and out, and your hand freezes before recoiling back to your torso in shock. And in the middle of the bath water, rain noisily splashing by your feet, you hear its footsteps inching closer as it struggles to breathe. The thump of pads on the floor stepping closer. You can do nothing but press your back against the wet wall behind you in paralysis, to the point where the sounds are less than a foot away from where you remember the curtain to be at your own eye level. That's when the light comes on and the choking stops. You shut off the water. All is quiet and you look to either side just in case, remembering all the horror movies you've seen in your entire life at this moment. Not a sound except the gurgling of the drain at your toes sucking down the last of the water calmly 
like it had been all in your head, and none of it had happened. You're standing there, dripping wet and naked, when you realize you've got to step out and meet whatever's there, waiting on the other side of the curtain. Polybius, written by Anonymous. In Portland, Oregon, in 1981, an unheard of new arcade game appeared in several suburbs, something of a rarity at the time. This game was called Polybius. The game proved to be incredibly popular to the point of addiction, and queues formed around the machine, quickly followed by clusters of visits from the Men in Black. Rather than the unusual marketing data collected by company visitors to arcade machines, they collected some unknown data, allegedly testing responses to the psychoactive machines. The players themselves suffered from a series of unpleasant side effects, amnesia, insomnia, nightmares, night terrors, and suicide appearing as having been caused by the game in various versions of the legend. Some players stopped playing video games, while it is reported that one became an anti-gaming activist. Alternate Story Polybius is an urban legend about a rare arcade game released in 1981. The game was created by a mysterious company called Sinis Lotion, German for Sense Deletion, and was a puzzle-slash-shoot-em-up, somewhat like Tempest. It was only released in a few suburbs of Portland, Oregon. It was supposedly very popular, with people forming long lines to play it. However, players reported strange things about the game, such as hearing a woman crying and seeing grotesque faces out of the corner of their eyes. Players would also have nightmares, experience nausea, headaches, blackouts, or even develop amnesia. Some even committed suicide. Others stopped playing video games altogether, and at least one became an anti-video game activist. According to one owner of an arcade, men wearing black suits would often come to collect records from the game. They did not take any money, simply data of gameplay. Because of this, the leading theory is that it was some sort of government experiment using subliminal messages. The game remains in obscurity, as around one month after its release, all of the cabinets suddenly disappeared. One cabinet reappeared in an arcade, 1998, but quickly disappeared again. While some have tried to recreate the game, no one has ever found the original ROM. The game can be found available for download in the media. Since its urban legend flowered into the phenomenon that is now, there have been many alleged sightings of the Polybius game, as well as a few short videos about it. The screenshot. As seen in the only screenshot, it says, Sinislution. Thanks to the Google Translate, it means sense delete. Possibly this could explain the amnesia. Rugrats Theory, written by Anonymous. The Rugrats really were a figment of Angelica's imagination. Chucky died a long time ago along with his mother. That's why Chaz is a nervous wreck 
all the time. Tommy was a stillborn. That's why Stu is constantly in the basement making toys for the son who had never had a chance to live. The DeVilles had an abortion. Angelica couldn't figure whether it would be a boy or a girl, thus creating the twins. As for all grown up, Angelica was a bipolar schizophrenic who, as a teenager, became addicted to various narcotics, bringing her back to her childhood, thus creating a world in her mind that she obsessed over. Because of the time lapse between the present and the last time she interacted with her imaginary world, she made them older. Angelica was constantly taking hits of acid, so she would never have to live without her creations. To her, her creations were her only company in a judgmental world. Angelica's mom actually died of a heroin overdose. Angelica was schizophrenic and bipolar because she was a crack baby. Additionally, Drew, in his depression, married a gold-digging whore that Angelica idolized because she fooled herself into thinking it was her real mom. However, she always had a concept of her mom, Cynthia. She used a Barbie doll to mirror her birth mother's image wearing an unwashed orange dress and jacked-up hair, which is why she's so attached to it. Later in life, she followed in her mother's footsteps, dying of an overdose at the age of 13, when All Grown Up was cancelled. The only rugrat not to be fictional, however, was unborn Tommy's brother, Dill. However, Angelica didn't know the difference between Dill and her creations. Dill didn't follow her commands, and after endless crying and a refusal to disappear, like the others did, when Angelica was angry with them, so she hit him. After she hit him, he screamed a screeching tune, and Stu ran in and pulled his knees off of his only child. But it was too late. Dill had a brain hemorrhage, which resulted in a deformation. As he grew up, his damage only became more evident. And by the time he was nine and all grown up, he lived as an outcast, being ridiculed for his weirdness and retardation. The immense guilt over this is what caused Angelica to start using drugs and to uncreate the Rugrats briefly, until her experience with hallucinogenics. Chaz lost his mind after the death of his first wife and was in denial that she was ever a prostitute. On a trip to Paris to find love, Chaz fell in love with a hooker named Kira. He was originally going to marry a different hooker, but she just wanted him for his money. Kira once had a daughter named Kimi, but the baby was torn for her by law to her cocaine addiction. Angelica imagined Kimi from Kira's stories. Upon return to America, Chaz and Kira married and she got her green card. It was a surprisingly happy and romantic story. Kira continually struggled with addiction, but was relatively happy with her new life with Chaz. Susie was Angelica's only friend who entertained the thought of Angelica's creation because they seemed to make her happy. She later became a psychologist and teamed up with Nickelodeon to make the Rugrats. When Angelica died of the overdose, Susie helped arrange her funeral. Because of her addictions and her mental state, Angelica was expelled from society, which led to a break with reality and her eventual death. 
She spent the last days of her life in the back of the school cafeteria, imagining friends around her and playing with the lives of her creations. Noises, written by Aidan Bo Baden. Thunder crashed and I sat up in my bed, startled out of a fitful sleep. I rubbed my eyes groggily and looked around my room, then got up and stumbled to the bathroom. As I relieved myself, I thought I heard something in the hallway outside my bedroom. My ears perked up and I listened intently for a second, then dismissed it as wind from the storm. I stumbled sleepily back into my bed and, just as I was about to fall back asleep, heard a loud crash from beyond my bedroom door. Whatever it was, it was heavy, enough to shake the whole house. I sat up quickly, my heart racing. My brain scrambled, looking frantically for a logical explanation, and couldn't find one. I didn't have any heavy objects that were overly unbalanced, and the storm wasn't that bad. I slowly got out of my bed and heard a low growl, followed by the shatter of breaking glass. I immediately froze, terrified out of my wits, adrenaline pumping through my veins as I slowly inched toward the door. Once I reached the door, I slowly reached for the door handle, then froze. I considered going out to investigate the noises, then realized that that was a stupid idea. And why the hell had I even considered that? Only stupid people do that. I then huddled in a corner and browsed Reddit until it was day. When I exited my room in the morning, I found my basement had been vandalized, and there was writing on the wall in what looked like blood. But upon further investigation, it was revealed to be ketchup? It said, Leaf now. I read this and pondered for a while, then went to the fridge, got a bottle of ketchup, then commented underneath it, Not very original, and your grammar is abysmal. I think you just need to scrap this one and move on to another idea. I then left the basement, grabbed a can of gasoline, dumped it into the basement, and lit it ablaze. Why wouldn't you do that? When it's obvious that there's something wrong with the house. Like, seriously, people. Lazy Saturday Night, written by My Cool of the Fear Collective. Here I lay, all snuggled up in bed, warm and satisfied under the soft silk covers, watching some stupid documentary on TV I've never heard of. I'd turn it over, but the gallon tub of cookie dough ice cream wouldn't let me use my hands for anything other than shoveling that frozen treat into my mouth. Nights like these are rare. It is often that everyone's out of the house but me, so I make sure to savor them in fact, I wasn't expecting anyone back until the morning. That's what made the sound of the door opening downstairs so alarming. Panic hits me like a steam train. I silently leap out from under the covers, spilling the ice cream all over the pristine white carpet on the floor, and creak open the wardrobe next to the bed. I hear footsteps, heavy and indiscreet, like they want me to know that they're there. I pant and pick up the spoon I had just been using to enjoy a relaxing night. The footsteps get louder, 
I forced myself into the minuscule space remaining in the wardrobe and closed the door just as the stranger opens the bedroom door, not sparing any seconds for silence. I peer through the gap. His face looks familiar, but I can't place my finger on where I know him from. He spots the spilled ice cream and darts his head across the wide expanse of the bedroom. Hello? He calls, not sounding vicious, but I've made that mistake before. Never, under any circumstances, assume friendliness from a voice. He looks under the bed. Oh crap, he's looking for someone. I hold back a whimper and start bending the bowl of the spoon back and forth, hoping to snap it off and create some way of defending myself. It snaps, but it creates a metallic click. The man turns his head around and makes his way to the wardrobe. I'm shaking now. Please don't open it. Please don't open it. Please don't open it! The door swings open and he sees me. We scream simultaneously in fear and surprise. Without hesitation, I leap onto the man and start digging into whatever stretch of flesh I can with the sharp edge of the spoon handle. He screeches in clear pain, but I won't stop. I hammer the handle deep into his chest and neck, over and over, till he becomes motionless. I've killed him. I cry in disgust and sprint downstairs and away from the house. I charge down the road until I feel like I'm far enough away. I sit down for a moment and exhale heavily before regaining my composure. Pulling out my phone, I open Twitter and search. Hashtag party. Hopefully this time, I'll find a household that isn't lying when they say they'll be out all night. Distorted Warning Signals Written by Ashley Rose Wellman When I got the first one, I was literally seconds away from stepping onto the plane when a call from unknown blared from my cell phone. It was a ringtone I hadn't heard before, one I was pretty sure hadn't come with the phone. Normally, I wouldn't have stopped to answer it, but I was expecting a call about a job I have interviewed for the previous week. I took a deep breath in and accepted the call. Hello? A woman's voice garbled and strange, as if her vocal cords have been shredded, and she was trying to desperately choke out something. Despite the unnerving, fractured quality of her voice, her tone was insistent and eerily calm. Then the call ended. I froze. I had always had a slight phobia of air travel, and something about this call just... There's no way. There's no way I was about to get on a seven-hour flight now. I turned around and headed toward the food court. I'd just get another flight later in the afternoon, I figured. I watched from the airport Starbucks three hours later as every TV in the terminal lit up with the crash footage of the plane I should have been on. No survivors, not a single one. I tried to trace the call, so did the police, but there was nothing to trace. There was no evidence my phone ever even had received a call around that time. They analyzed phone records, incoming and outgoing communications to my phone. Nothing. I wasn't making it up. I couldn't have been. That wasn't the only phone call, though. Throughout the years, they were 
few and far between, but always right, and I always listened. Do not go Five months later, my would-be date was convicted of killing four women, all with my hair color and build. Found them in a shallow grave about 250 feet from the diner he offered to take me to. Do not drive to the concert tonight. 18-wheeler lost control and plowed into a line of cars. Every driver crushed, every driver killed. In the stretch of a freeway, I would have been driving down. No matter if I got a new phone, if I moved across the country, the calls would still come. I would almost feel the presence of whatever it was, whatever it is watching over me. I imagine being at the bottom of the freezing ocean, still strapped into my couch section plane seat, or being in that mass grave across the diner, or watching an 18-wheeler skidding towards my car, knowing death was imminent. And I'd get this tightness in my chest. I'd think about how thin that line was, how close I'd gotten. If I hadn't had a job interview and I was waiting on a callback from them, I'd have never listened to that first call, and that would be it for me. It always felt like something was coming for me, but there was always this, this fractured, warped voice with these calls that never seemed to exist after I heard them. Self-destructing warning signals rotting away before my eyes, and I was alive. I had a bad feeling about this cruise. I had planned it as a girls week out with some of my old friends from college and was looking forward to a week in the tropics in the dead of winter. But a part of me could almost sense that the call was coming. Maybe I'd watched Titanic one too many times, but there was a little nagging fear from the start. I hoped it would be fine, but I knew that if something was going to happen, I'd get the call. I'd know. Now, a week before I'm set to go to the cruise, after stepping into my apartment, after returning from dinner with a friend, I notice my cell has a message from unknown. They've never had to leave a message before. Haven't checked it all night. Damn it! And I had really wanted to go to that cruise, too. Oh well. Not worth whatever horrific fate awaited me in that cold, dark ocean. I click play message and feel my stomach drop as I listen to the voice sounding horrifically distorted, as if it emanates from a throat slashed to ribbons, crackling with more urgency than ever before. I look around my apartment as the voice on the phone repeats the same phrase over and over again. Do not come home after dinner tonight. Do not come home after dinner tonight. Do not come home after dinner tonight. Every Child's Fear, written by Anonymous. You remember that feeling, don't you? The feeling that you're being watched, that if you make the slightest movement, you're dead. Everybody had that fear as a child. You wake up in the night, can't go back to sleep, shuffling back and forth from one uncomfortable position to the next, hoping to find a way to sudden the slumber, but you give up. There's no way you're going back to sleep anytime soon. So you simply turn on your side and stare out the window. The road, the lights, the trees, 
All seems so strange under the cover of night. You try to keep your mind quiet of any distractions, remembering that you still need to sleep, and that's when that feeling hits you. The feeling swarms all over you like an ice-cold blanket that has just been spread across your back. You remember that it is night, and that night is when fear likes to hunt. You feel almost as if you are being watched from behind you. You can't see it, but its eyes are trained on you. You want to move, but you can't. If you do, something bad, no, something horribly wrong is going to happen to you. The only thing you can do is remain quiet and still, and then it won't notice you. As you lie on your bed, frozen in fear, you begin to think about your bed sheets. If only you could quickly grab one bed sheet and throw them over yourselves to hide your body from whatever evil monstrosity stands behind you. It could be done, perhaps. If you're fast enough and precise, you could succeed. You decide to think no longer. You flip yourself and grab your bed sheets with both hands without looking around your room and swipe back down covering yourself with a thick blanket. Safety. It is then that your mind comes back to you, and you remind yourself that there is nothing there. Darkness clouds that mind, and cause it to hallucinate, with the only limitation being your imagination. You slowly poke your head out of the sheets, and scan your eyes around the room. Nothing. You place your head back on the pillow, and slowly drift off to sleep. This is every child's fear, and parents always tell their children to go back to sleep, and that it is good for them to work through their fears. They are wrong. Because what they don't know is that when children hide under their bed sheets, the real fear is not what is standing over them, but what is staring at them from under the covers. Candlejack In this world, there exists a spirit neither male nor female. This spirit is covered with a dark cloth, with a separate white cloth to cover its head. It is said to carry an enormous brown burlap sack in which it holds its victims. It is said that the second its name has been called out, either directly or indirectly, the person is collected and becomes the property of the spirit. Many who have witnessed its appearance have been said to have gone insane and were later found with their eyes gouged out. This spirit is very, very real, and a failure to prevent the mention of its name will cause Kendall Jack to come and whisk you away. Abandoned by Disney, written by Anonymous. Some of you may have heard that the Disney Corporation is responsible for at least one real live ghost town. Disney built this Treasure Island resort in Baker's Bay in the Bahamas. It didn't start as a ghost town. Disney's cruise ships would actually stop at the resort and leave tourists there to relax in luxury. This is a fact. Look it up. Disney blew $30 million on this place. Yeah, 
$30 million. Then they abandoned it. Disney blamed the shallow waters, too shallow for their ships to safely operate. And there was even blame that the cast of the workers, saying that since they were from the Bahamas, they were too lazy to work a regular schedule. That's where the factual nature of their stories ends. It wasn't because of sand, and it obviously wasn't because foreigners are lazy. Both are convenient excuses. No. I sincerely doubt these reasons were legitimate. Why don't I buy the official story? Because of Mowgli's Palace. Near the beachside city of Emerald Isle in North Carolina, Disney began construction of Mowgli's Palace in the late 1990s. The concept was a jungle-themed resort with a large, you guessed it, palace in the center of the whole thing. If you're unfamiliar with the character of Mowgli, then you might better remember the story The Jungle Book. If you haven't seen it anywhere else, Mowgli is an abandoned child in the jungle, essentially raised by animals and simultaneously threatened slash pursued by other animals. Mowgli's palace was a controversial undertaking from the start. Disney bought up a ton of high-priced land for the project, and there was actually a scandal surrounding some of the purchases. The local government claimed imminent domain on people's homes, then turned around and sold the properties to Disney. At one point, a home that had just been constructed was immediately condemned, with little to no explanation. The land grabbed by the government was supposedly for some fictional highway project. Knowing full well that was going on, people started calling it Mickey Mouse Highway. Then there was a concept art. A group of stuffed shirts from Disney Co. actually held a city meeting. They intended to sell everyone on how lucrative this project was going to be for everyone. When they showed the concept art, this gigantic Indian palace, surrounded by jungle, staffed with men and women, in loincloths, and tribal gear. Well, suffice to say everyone flipped their crap. We're talking about large Indian palaces, jungle, and loincloths. Not only in the center of a relatively wealthy area, but also a somewhat xenophobic area of the southern USA. It was a questionable mix at the point in history. One member of the crowd tried to storm the stage, but he was quickly subdued by security after he managed to break one of the presentation boards over his knee. Disney took that community and essentially broke it over its knee as well. The houses were raised, the land was cleared, and there wasn't a damn thing anyone could do or say anything about it. Local TV and newspapers were against the resort at the beginning, but some insane connection between Disney's media, holdings, and the local venue came into play, and their options turned on a dime. So anyway, Treasure Island, the Bahamas, Disney snuck those millions in and then split. The same thing happened with Mowgli's place. Construction was complete. Visitors actually stayed at the resort. The surrounding communities were flooded with traffic and the unusual annoyances associated with an influx of lost and irate tourists. Then it all just stopped. Disney shut it down and nobody knew what the hell to think but they were pretty happy about it. 
Disney's loss was pretty hilarious and wonderful to a large group of folks who didn't want this in the first place. I honestly didn't give the place another thought since hearing it was closed over a decade ago. I live maybe four hours from Emerald Isle, so really I only heard the rumblings and didn't experience any of it firsthand. Then I read this article from someone who had explored the Treasure Island Resort and posted a whole blog about all the crazy crap he found there. Stuff just left behind. Things mashed, defaced, probably ruined by the disgruntled former employees who had lost their jobs. Hell, the locals from all over probably had a hand in wrecking the place. People there felt just as angry about Treasure Island as folks here did about Mowgli's Palace. Plus, there were rumors that Disney had released their aquarium stock into the local waters when they closed, including sharks. Who wouldn't want to take a few swings at some merchandise after that? Well, what I'm getting at is that this blog from Treasure Island got me thinking. Even though many years had passed since its closing, I figured it might be cool to do some urban exploration at Mowgli's Palace. You know, take some photos, write about the experience, and probably see if there was anything I could take home as a memento. I'm not going to say I wasted no time in getting there, because honestly, it took me another year after I first found the Treasure Island article to get around to going up to Emerald Island. Over the course of that year, I did a lot of research on the Palace Resort, or rather, I tried to. Naturally, no official Disney site or resource made any mention of this place. They have been scrubbed clean. Even Otter, however, was that nobody before myself had apparently thought to blog about this place, or even post a photo. None of the local TV or newspaper sites had one word about this place, though that was to be expected since they had all swung Disney's way. They wouldn't be out there lauding their embarrassment, you know. Recently, I learned that corporations can actually ask Google, for example, to remove links from their search results. Basically, for no good reason. Looking back, it's probably not that nobody spoke of the resort, but rather their words were made inaccessible. So in the end, I could barely find the place. All I had to go on was an old-as-hell map I'd received in the mail back in the 90s. It was a promotional item sent out to people who had recently been to Disney World. And I guess since I had been there in the late 80s, that was recent. I didn't really intend to hang onto it. It just got shoved into my books and comics from my childhood. I'd only remembered it a few months ago into my research. And even then, it took me another few weeks to locate the storage bin my parents had shoved it all into. But I did find it. Locals were no help as most were transplants who had moved to the beach in recent years or old residents who just sneered at me and made rude gestures the second I managed to say, where would I find Mowgli's? Yeah. The drive took me through an indolently long corridor of overgrowth, tropical plants that had run rampant and overpopulated the area mixed with native species, a flora that actually belonged there, and had tried to reclaim the land. I was at awe when I reached the front gates of the resort. Tremendous monolithic wooden gates, who must have been cut by angels themselves. The gate itself had been 
gouged in several places by woodpeckers and eaten away at the base by burrowing insects. Hanging on the gate was a sheet of metal, some random scrap with hand-painted letters scrawled in black, abandoned by Disney. Clearly the handiwork of some local or an employee who wanted to make some small protest. The gates were open enough to walk through, but not drive. So grabbing my digital camera and the map, whose flip side showed a layout of the resort, I set off on foot. The inner grounds of the place were just as overgrown as the entryway. Palm trees stood unattended and ragged among piles of their own coconuts. Banana plants similarly stood in their own sinking, bug-riddled refuse. There was this sort of clash between order and chaos. As carefully planted rows of perianal flowers mixed with the obnoxious tall weeds and stinking blackened mushrooms. All that remained of an outdoor structure were broken. Rotting wood and various charred bits of unidentifiable material, what as most likely an information booth or an outdoor bar, was now simply a pile of assorted debris chopped up with the past vandalism and ravaged by the weather. The most interesting thing on the grounds was a statue of Baloo, the friendly bear from the Jungle Book, which stood in a sort of courtyard in front of the main building. He was frozen in a juvial wave toward no one, staring into empty space with a silly, toothy grin as bird crap covered the whole swaths of his fur and vines ensnared his platform. I approached the main building, the palace, only to find the outside of the building covered in graffiti where the original paint hadn't peeled and chipped away. The front doors were just open. They had been taken off their hinges and were stolen. Above the front doors were the gaping maw where they had been. Someone had once again painted, abandoned by Disney. I wish I could tell you about all of the awesome stuff I saw inside the palace. Forgotten statues, abandoned cash registers, a full-fledged secret society of homeless bums. But no. The inside of the building was so stark, so bare, that I actually think people had stolen the molding off the walls. Anything that was too big to steal, counters, desks, giant fake trees, they were all resting amid this empty echo chamber that amplified my every step like a slow rat-a-tat of a machine gun. I checked the floor plan and headed to all the locations that might seem in any way interesting. The kitchen was as you'd imagine, an industrial food prep area with all the appliances in space, no expenses spared. Every glass surface was broken, every door knocked off its hinges, every metal surface kicked and dented. The entire place smelled like very old piss. The huge freezer, not even remotely cool now, had row upon row of empty shelf space. Hooks hung from the ceiling, probably from hanging cuts of meat, and as I stood inside for a moment, I noticed they were swinging. Each hook swung in a random direction, but their movements were so slow and small that it was almost impossible to see. I figured it had been caused by my footsteps, so... I stopped one from swinging, 
by clutching it in my fist, then carefully letting go. But within seconds, it started to swing once more. The public restrooms were in much the same state as the rest of the place. Just like the Treasure Island Resort, someone had smashed each porcelain toilet with coconuts and other implements. There was also about half an inch of rancid, stinking, stagnant water on the floor, so I didn't stay there very long. What's odd is that the toilets and the sinks, yes, also in the ladies' room, I went in there, all dripped, leaked, and just ran freely. It seemed to me that they should have shut the water off long, long ago. There were plenty of rooms in the resort, but naturally I didn't have time to look through them all. The few I did peer into were similarly wrecked, and I didn't expect to find anything there. I thought there was an actual television or radio in one room, as I really think I heard a quiet conversation coming out. Though it was like a whisper, probably my own breathing echoing in silence, or just another case of the sound of flowing water playing tricks on my mind. This is what it sounded like. Number one. I didn't believe it. Number two, short unknown replies. Number one, I didn't know that. Number two, your father told you. Number one, unknown reply, or possibly just weeping. I know, I know, it sounds ridiculous. I'm just telling you what I experienced. Why I thought that there might have been something running in that room, or worse, some vagrants who had held up the place and probably would have knifed me. At the front door of the palace again, I figured I hadn't found anything of note and had wasted the trip up. As I looked out the door, I noticed something interesting in the courtyard that I had apparently missed. Something that would give me at least one thing to show for all my trouble, even if it just was a photograph. There was a lifelike statue of a python maybe 15 feet long, coiled up and sunning itself on a pedestal right in the center of the area. It was almost time for the sun to start setting, so the light fell onto the object in a perfect way for a photograph. I approached the python and snapped a photo. Then I stood on my toes and snapped another. I moved closer again to get details on its face. Slowly, casually, the python lifted its head, looked directly into my eyes, turned, and slithered off the pedestal, across the grass, and into the trees. All fifty feet of it, its head long disappeared into the woods before its tail even left the sunning spot. Disney had released all their toxic animals onto the grounds. Right there on the floor plan map was the reptile house. I should have known. I've read about the sharks at Treasure Isle, and I should have known they've done this. I was dumbfounded, just utterly stupefied. My mouth must have been hanging open for the longest time before I came back down to earth and snapped it shut. I blinked a few times and backed away from where the snake had been, back toward the palace. Even though it was totally gone, I still wasn't taking any chances and backed my way into the building. 
It took a few deep breaths and slaps to my face to get myself right in the head again after that. I looked for a place to sit down as my legs were feeling a bit like jelly at this point. Of course, there was no place to sit unless I wanted to recline in the broken glass and dead leaf carpet or haul myself into a desk of questionable reliability. I had seen some stairs near the palace lobby and decided to go and have a seat there until I felt better. The staircase was far enough away from the front of the building to be relatively clean, save for the startling accumulation of dust. I pulled a wedge of metal off the wall, once again painted with the Abandoned by Disney motto I'd become accustomed to. I placed the wedge on the stairs and sat on it, to keep at least somewhat clean. The stairway led downward, below ground level. Using my camera flash as a sort of improvised flashlight, I could see that their staircase ended in a metal mesh door with a padlock. A sign on the door, a real sign, read, Mascots only, thank you. This perked up my spirits a little bit for two reasons. One, a mascots only area would have definitely had some interesting stuff back in the day. Two, the padlock was still in place. Nobody had gone down there. Not the vandals, not the looters, nobody. This was the only place that I could actually explore and perhaps find something interesting to photograph or want only steal. I had come to the palace essentially agreeing with myself that it was okay to take anything I wanted because, hey, it's abandoned. It didn't take much to bust the lock. Well, actually, that's wrong. It didn't take much to bust the metal plate on the wall that the padlock was hooked to. Time and decay had done most of the work for me, and I was able to bend the metal plate enough to pull the screws out of the wall, something nobody else had apparently thought of, or hadn't been able to do at that time. The mascot's only area was a startling and very welcome change from the rest of the buildings I've seen. For one, Every second or third fluorescent light overhead was illuminated, even though they flickered and faded randomly. Also, nothing had been stolen or broken, even if age and exposure were definitely taking their toll. Tables had no pads and pens. There were clocks. Even a punch-in clock on the wall complete with a fill-out card. Chairs were scattered around and there was an even small break room with an old static-filled television and long, rotted-out food and drinks on the counters. It was like one of those post-apocalyptic movies where everything is left in the state of evacuation. As I walked the maze-like sub-basement hallways of the mascot-only area, the sights just became more and more interesting. As I went further, desks and tables were knocked over, paper scattered and almost melded with a damp floor and a large carpet of mold was slowly overtaking the real rotting crimson floor covering. Everything was just sort of squishy. Anything wood, disgusting, turned into mush when I applied even the least amount of force, and clothing items hanging on hooks in one of the rooms simply fell to moist threads if I tried to unhook them. One thing that annoyed me was the light was becoming more sparse and unreliable. As I went further into the dank, suffocating depths of this place, 
Eventually, I reached a black and yellow striped door with the words, Character Prep 1, stenciled on it. The door wouldn't open at first. I figured there was probably where the costumes were kept, and I definitely wanted a photograph of that twisted, stinking mess. Try as I might, however, angle or trick I tried, the door wouldn't budge. That is, until I gave up and started to walk away. That was when there was a slight popping sound, and the door creaked open slowly. Inside, the room was completely dark, pitch black. I used the camera flash to look for a light switch on the wall by the door, but there was nothing. As I made my search, I was jarred out of my senses of excitement by a loud electric buzz. Rows of light overhead suddenly flashed to life, flickering and fading in and out like the rest I had passed. It took a second for my eyes to adjust, and it seemed like the light was going to keep getting brighter until the bulbs exploded. But just when I thought it would reach the critical stage, the lights dimmed a bit and steadied. The room was exactly as I had pictured it. Various Disney costumes hung on the walls, fully put together like strange cartoon cadavers hung from invisible noses. There was an entire rack of loincloths and native clothes on hangers towards the back. What I found odd, and what I wanted to photograph right away, was Mickey Mouse and his costume. At the center of the room, unlike the other costumes, it was lying on its back in the center of the floor, like a murder victim. The fur of the costume was rotting and shedding, creating bare patches. What was even more odd, however, was the coloring of the costume. It was like a photo negative of the actual Mickey Mouse, black where he should be white, and white where he should be black. His normally red pants was a light blue. The sight was off-putting enough that I actually postponed photographing the thing until last. I took a picture of the costumes hanging on the walls. Upward angles, downward angles, side shots to show the entire row of frozen, putrid cartoon faces. Some with plastic eyes missing. Then I decided to stage a shot. Just one of the bedraggled character heads on the slick, grimy floor. I reached for a headpiece of a Donald Duck costume and carefully removed it so the thing wouldn't fall apart in my hands. As I looked into the face of the wide-eyed, moldering head, a loud clattering sound made me jump with fright. I looked down at my feet, and there between my shoes was a human skull. It had fallen out of the mascot's head and shattered into pieces at my feet. Only the empty face and lower jaw remained, staring up at me. I dropped the Donald Duck head immediately, as you'd expect, and moved to the door. As I stood in the doorway, I looked back to the skull on the floor. I had to take a picture of it, you know? I had to. For any number of reasons that may seem silly, but only if you don't think it through. I need proof of what happened, especially if Disney was going to somehow make this go away. I had no doubt in my mind right from the start that even if it was just gross negligence, Disney was responsible for this. This was why the resort had closed, and I was the only one outside Disney's company who knew. That's when Mickey 
that photo-negative opposite Mickey in the middle of the floor, started to get up, first sitting up, then climbing to its feet. The Mickey Mouse costume, or whoever was inside of it, stood there at the center of the room, its fake face just staring directly at me, and it mumbled, No. Over and over and over, with shaking hands, a violently thrashing heart, and legs that had just once again turned into jelly, I managed to lift the camera and aim at the opposite creature now quietly, sizing me up, head tilted. The digital camera screen displayed only dead pixels in the shape of the thing. It was a perfect silhouette of Mickey Mouse's costume. As the camera moved in my unsteady hands, the dead pixels spread, mirroring the screen wherever Mickey's outline moved to. Then the camera died, went blank and quiet and broken. I raised my eyes once again to the Mickey Mouse costume. It said in a hush, perverted, but perfectly executed Mickey Mouse voice. Wanna see my head come off? It started to pull at its own head, working its clumsy, glove-clad fingers around its neck with clawing, impatient movements similar to a wounded man trying to pull himself free of a predator's jaw. As it worked its digits into its neck, so much blood, so much thick, curled, yellow blood. I turned away as I heard a sickening tear of cloth and flesh. Only cared about getting away. Above the doorway, out of this room, I saw the final message clawed into the metal with bone or fingernails. Abandoned by God. I never got the pictures out of the camera. I never wrote the blog entry about it. After I ran from that place, fled for my sanity, if not my very life, I knew why Disney didn't want anyone to know about this place. They didn't want anyone like me getting in, but they didn't want anything like that getting out. Thank you for joining me on this week's episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you'd like to listen to. If you haven't done so yet, please do a review. It helps me out. Everything that I use is in the description below. Thank you again for listening to Creepypasta Myths. I'll see you guys next week with a brand new episode.